Simple Beep, episode 37, The Control Strip. Hello, and welcome to Simple Beep, a podcast looking back at the history of Apple and the Mac community. I'm Ed Cormany. And I'm Brian Satorius. And as usual, before we even get into our topic for today, we have a little bit of follow-up and kind of an announcement. Yes, in our previous episode about Apple's 40 in 40 video, the one detail I brought up about Safari was how I jokingly missed the snapback UI. The feature actually still lives in Safari, but there's no fun little orange circle with a white arrow to snap you back to the last thing you searched for in Google. But as Ed found out, this UI still exists in dictionary.app in OS X. When you search for something within the dictionary app and maybe click away to different synonyms or antonyms, you can always snap back to the last word you searched for. Yeah, and I have to imagine that that's probably using the same old APIs because the dictionary app is, it's essentially a web view. It has it has the, the database that contains all the dictionary and thesaurus information locally, and then it can also go out to things like Wikipedia and pulling that stuff, but it's it, it it's just a web view. Right. So I think that's it for follow-up, quick follow-up today. But we do have an announcement, which if you've been following us on Twitter, you probably caught wind of this already, but I think this is probably a good time to say it officially, which is that uh, this fall in September, both of us are going to be at the Release Notes conference. And just this week, as we record this, Release Notes announced the list of speakers for the conference, and it looks like a really, really incredible lineup. I know that I am looking forward to hearing some of these people talk in person and getting to meet some of them in person. Yes, I am too. I'm very, very excited. And uh, as we record this, uh, just a couple hours ago, Apple uh, announced and started accepting money for WWDC. And of course, this is uh, an expensive trip to make for for any developer, really. And a lot of conferences in the the Mac universe have stepped up to provide uh, lower cost tickets or uh, any way that they can get other members of the community who might miss WWDC uh, to come out to their show. And Release Notes is one of those participating conferences. So please check it out and we will see you there if you go. Yeah, we will put a link to the page there, releasenotes.tv that has all the info about the conference coming up in September in Indianapolis. So if you're in the Midwest U.S. particularly, uh, it's definitely a good option. And I am, and you're close enough, Brian. Close enough. So on to our topic for this week, which is a kind of venerable but odd part of the classic Mac OS, and it's the control strip. And one of the reasons that it's a little bit of an odd man out is that it was not originally available on every Mac. And it's kind of odd to have a core OS feature that only shows up on certain hardware, but the history of the control strip makes sense with this. And so if you're not familiar with the control strip, it was this little bar that contained several different modules that you could use to control different features of your Mac. And This became pretty prevalent in the later days of the classic Mac OS, but it shipped much, much earlier than that with System 7.1 in 1994. And the hardware limitations were that the control strip was originally treated as a laptop-only feature. So there were special builds of System 7.1, I believe System 7.1.1, perhaps, that went on the PowerBook 500 series and the Duo 280 when these PowerBooks were released. And we'll put a link in the show notes to the PowerBook 500 series manual that has an entire chapter devoted to the control strip. And if you've never seen the control strip before, like I said, it's a, it's a series of these little icons and modules. And one of the other things that's distinctive about the control strip is the tab that goes on the end of it. And I don't know, I think it's a little bit uncharitable, but I always heard this referred to as the Band-Aid. Yeah, it's like a gray Band-Aid. It's got the the little, like, I guess on a Band-Aid, they'd be almost ventilation holes, but 
you know, when you think of a Band-Aid, it's kind of that, that skin tone with a, like pockmarks in it. Yeah, and these are the little grab handles for the control strip. And the primary interaction there was that you could either click on this tab to expand or hide the control strip, or you could drag on it to show or hide a portion of the control strip. And like I said, this was a PowerBook feature uh, from the manual here. You know, it was a default feature. So when you first turn on your PowerBook, a line of small pictures appears in the lower left of the screen. This is called the control strip. Each picture in the control strip is called a module. And what was the purpose of having this new piece of interface was the fact that with the PowerBooks, there were certain tasks that you needed to do that you didn't necessarily have to have easy access to on a desktop computer. And we'll get into that a little bit uh, later on in the show. But that was the whole purpose here was to say, okay, we need a dedicated interface element to some laptop-specific tasks. And if you think back to early System 7, there really wasn't a whole heck of a lot of places to put some new piece of interface that should be accessible at all times. We think of the, in OS X, the different pieces of interface that seem kind of always on. And you've got the menu bar, and of course that was there in the classic Mac OS. And then you've got the dock, which was obviously not there. And then you have in the top right corner of the screen in OS X, you have all kinds of little menu bar apps and utilities. And those weren't really there in early System 7 either. There was no clock. There was nothing that really indicated system status or anything that you could interact with other than the balloon help and the application switcher. And so the control strip needed to go somewhere else. Also because if you think about screen resolutions at that time, especially laptop screen resolutions, if you started putting things, more and more and more things, in the top right of the menu bar, that wasn't really an option. You ran out of space almost immediately. I'm sitting here looking at a 21-inch Retina iMac, and there's tons of white space between my menu titles and all of the menu extras over on the right-hand side. But I know that on laptops, like my work laptop or just anyone that you see with like a MacBook in a coffee shop, if they're not managing what they have up in that top right corner, you can run the risk of a collision in the middle. And that was going to be inevitable if Apple started putting functionality up in the menu bar as early as System 7.1. So they didn't. They put it somewhere else. And what you got was kind of, if you've never seen the control strip, think of it as kind of the shape and behavior a little bit of the dock, but with the functionality of everything that goes on up in the right-hand corner of the menu bar. By default, the control strip was anchored to the lower left corner of the screen, kind of opposite of where the all the menu extras are today at the upper right. And the control strip always had to stay anchored to uh, either the left or the right edge of the screen. But you could drag the control strip up and down so that if you wanted it to rest just below the menu bar and you know expand horizontally under it, you could do that. Yeah, absolutely. And you could also move it all the way over to the right-hand side of the screen. And the animation for that was kind of non-existent. And so... I think probably many users never even discovered that feature because if you if you figured out the way to move it up or down, which I believe is you had to hold the option key mm-hmm. and then drag the tab up or down, well, that was easy enough to find. I think in the classic Mac, if you were a power user of any sort, you would try option or command clicking on just about anything that was new to you. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so you would find that and you would see that the little the little outline shadow of the control strip would move up or down and it was, oh, okay, I can move it up and down this side of the screen. But if you kind of try to drag off into the middle, that shadow would stay fixed to the side. But if you went all the way over to the other side, or at least more than halfway across the screen, it would snap over to the other side. This makes me think of people who have arguments about which side is the right place to put their dock. (laughs) 
Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I suppose that in the classic Mac days, you could have had the same argument about what is the right place to put your control strip. But we might actually be getting ahead of ourselves a little bit here, because like I said, this was a PowerBook-only feature when it was introduced. And there were definite reasons for that. It was that we had PowerBook-specific features that needed a place on the screen. But as the control strip lived on and the macOS developed, Apple realized that the control strip was really useful and that many different things could be built into it. And so it did become a core piece of the OS and available on desktop machines as well with the introduction of System 7.5.3. So not even a a System 7.5 feature, but it was like, I I don't know what the circumstances were that said, okay, this this one point release will will give you the control strip. (laughs) Um, But that was the time that it came officially to all Mac models, and that was in 1996. So getting back to the modules themselves, uh, when you expanded your control strip to show one or all of them, they would each be represented with a little 16 by 16 icon, and uh, you would click on it, and a little pop-up menu initially would expand from that icon that contained information or selectable menu items to perform certain tasks. You can think about uh, like the battery menu icon in OS 10 today has some a lot of like grayed out menu options that show you how much time is remaining and whether you're plugged in or running off the battery. A lot of the control strip modules would have pop-up menus with similar things, conveying information basically as a grayed out menu item. Right. And those graphics, I think many of them were the 16 by 16 small icons, but they didn't necessarily have to be. And they did show some other information and control strip modules and these went across horizontally and they could get quite large and quite wide. <laughs> um, and that could pose a problem perhaps if, if you didn't want to take up all that space on your screen or want to be collapsing and uncollapsing, clicking on that little band-aid tab all the time to show and hide the control strip. One of the things that's interesting about the way that You could interact with them. Obviously, if they were showing some status information, you didn't have to interact with them at all. But many of them were quick access to features or settings. And initially, those were all menus, just the same as some of the menu bar extras in OS X produce genuine menus, even things like the clock in OS X. If you click on that, you get something that is, it's a menu. And it looks exactly looks and behaves exactly like the other menus on the opposite side of the menu bar in OS X. But there are things like Notification Center and Spotlight that give you decidedly non-menu things. Mm-hmm. And we'll get to that later as well. But that same kind of desire to say, oh, well, some of these lend themselves to menus and some of them don't, that also happened with the control strip. And as it was improved in OS 8 and OS 9, because it was a feature that was accessible to all of Apple's users, not just those that had PowerBooks, which was really a smaller portion, especially think in in the early 90s when this was introduced, then the control strip modules were given additional capabilities to have more refined interfaces for interacting with them and changing settings. One that's a really good example is changing the sound volume. So there was a control strip module for changing your output speaker sound volume. And the original version of that control strip module had a pop-up menu that literally had the options zero through nine. It's obvious what they represent, but that's not necessarily the best way or the most intuitive way to represent volume. More intuitive is to have something like a slider that shows that the bottom side of the slider is low volume, and the top side of the slider is high volume. And so that refinement was made later on in the control strip's life. Going back to some of those original modules, uh, and I was talking about the battery menu currently in the OS X menu bar, one of the main things you'd like to check on as a laptop owner is the status of your battery. So that was one of the original control strip modules. And 
As you can see in the PowerBook 500 series manual that we linked to in our show notes, that model of PowerBook and other models of PowerBook that followed actually had more than one uh, expansion base. So any given machine might have two batteries. And the control strip module would reflect that. You could see bar meters that showed the charge of each battery uh, installed in your system. And there were some other fun little interface elements like uh, how much, of course, how much longer your machine would last untethered to the wall. And in even a little like current use of like how much energy your computer is using that was uh, displayed as a, like a little speedometer. Yeah, the more that I look at this, the more absurd that I realize it is as this is the very first introduction to the control strip in the manual. So this is like, this is the canonical introduction for new users to the control strip, right? And there are several modules present here. They're all the ones that come pre-installed with these PowerBook 500s. And the battery monitor is, first of all, showing dual batteries, which is not a default configuration of the hardware, but is showing off the potential of the software. But the battery monitor module itself is literally 50% of the entire width of the control strip. Everything else is a little well-behaved 16 by 16 icon with a little um, little triangle next to it showing that it does behave like a pop-up menu. But the battery monitor is monstrous. It's got these bars like like the old style reception bars on on an iPhone or earlier phone that have since been replaced with dots. It has those for each of the two batteries left and right. Then it's got the gauge for showing the power usage and I don't know how that was measured whether it was by actual like wattage metering or whether it was actually kind of a CPU monitor in disguise. I I would imagine I would hope that it was by actually checking the drain on the battery because with those early laptops there were so many different factors that go into the battery usage. Whereas with a modern laptop today, it's pretty much going to be dependent on CPU usage, maybe some IO. Mm -hmm. And then this is the really sad thing (laughs) in this particular screenshot that's in the manual is that it shows the time remaining, which is of course the most useful feature. And it shows that this particular laptop has two batteries installed. The left battery is fully charged the right battery is 60% charged. So that's 160% total charge. And the time remaining is three hours and 21 minutes. (laughs) We have come a long way in battery technology since 1994. (laughs) And one of the other things that's interesting about particularly that battery monitor is like I said, it's a monster. What, What if I don't want all of that noise about the battery? What if I just want it to show me like how much time I have left? That's the most useful piece of information to me. And I believe that in those little menus that would pop up from the control strip module, not only could you perhaps change some settings regarding the actual battery usage, but you could change the display of that module as well and sort of shrink it down to show some more specific information. There are some other energy-specific control strip modules that you would see and if you were running the control strip on a power book. Yeah, this is a running theme among the control strip modules. And it makes sense that that if you bought a Mac laptop in the early to mid-90s, your primary concern was going to be getting to use the laptop when you were on battery power. And you might need to kind of manually change and monitor four or five different variables to make sure that that's going to go smoothly and not leave you with a computer that is just totally shut down. <laughs> One other thing for the uh, for the battery monitor module itself is that if you have a Mac laptop today running OS X, you know that the display on the built-in battery monitor in the menu bar or on third-party ones that I've used in the past, like Slim Battery Monitor, you see a different view depending on what the charge status is. So if you're plugged in, if you're not plugged in and the battery is discharging, or if you're plugged in and it's all the way up to 100% and you're just running off mains power. So there were these similar different 
icons for the different statuses in the original control strip module. But there was another one where <laughs> it would just show the power plug icon. I thought, oh, that's the one where the battery is fully charged and you're just connected to power. And the manual corrected me on this. It says, if you see just this icon, this means that the power adapter is plugged in and the batteries are not in the computer. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which I think in more recent Mac laptops, obviously in current Mac laptops, you cannot physically remove the battery. But if you think back a generation or two of MacBooks where you did have a removable battery, you could run them solely off of the power adapter. But if you did that and you didn't have a battery in there, say your battery was bulging or had you know gone bad and, and you didn't want it in the computer because you were afraid that it would harm the computer but you still needed to use it. And you said, that's fine. I can just leave it on a desk plugged in. Everything will be fine. If you did that and ran it sans battery, the operating system would just yell at you all day. And the fact that that seems like a totally normal thing to do with a power book was, was a little bit of a surprise to me. Yeah. I, I got burned by that once where I forget what the problem was with my battery, but it was a first generation MacBook, like the first Intel consumer laptop, which had a removable battery and also had MagSafe. And that's just a precarious situation. Yeah, I under I totally understand that with MagSafe because I mean, I know that I'll be sitting at my desk at work and have my laptop plugged in and just kind of like play with the MagSafe connector. It's like, oh, this is a fun magnet connect, disconnect, connect, disconnect. And like, if you have that one little disconnect with no battery in, it's all over <laughs> Yeah, there were some other power settings that you could control in uh, the control strip if you were using a laptop. And one of these was basically, it was called power settings, and it was basically the little option that definitely used to be an energy saver, maybe still is an energy saver, but it's like when you're on battery, do you want to optimize for battery life or CPU performance? Basically like throttle down the CPU when you're not connected to a power source. And uh, that was all that this one little control strip module did. It gave you the option to go to more similar options within the PowerBook control panel. Right, which looked substantially similar unless you clicked the advanced options pane. And then you got a whole slew of more fine-grained energy-saving options like we're used to in OS X. Like, when do I put the display to sleep? There was a control strip module for like manually choosing to spin down your platter hard disk. All of these things are basically relics of the past, like um, powering your computer without a battery in it, spinning down the hard drive. I remember using the hard drive spin down control strip module. Uh, my mom got, I think it was a PowerBook 190. Uh, she got it used several years after the control strip had come out and was part of the operating system. And I remember that to accomplish pretty much anything on that machine with battery power on, you really had to be diligent about making sure that the hard drive spun down. Because it was going to consume more power than the display. It was going to consume more power than the CPU. Just having that motor turning was the number one hog of battery power in that machine. Say you were working on a word processing document, you would make sure that you loaded it up and got to the state that you needed to be in and you say, turn that hard disk off. And then you would work for a little while and you would save the document and the hard drive would spin up, obviously, because it needed to write the document to disk. And then you'd say, turn that off. <laughs> because if that hard drive spun for two, five, ten minutes, whatever the timeout was, then you would be losing two, five, ten percent of your battery. <laughs> And you couldn't afford that if you were writing an essay for school the next day and you didn't have your power adapter, then you needed every ounce of juice to come out of that battery. It's a thing that should be totally of the past. I know that there have been some recent laments about the fact that Apple still sells base configurations of some of their hardware now, like I think even Retina iMacs with spinning platter drives as a default. Obviously, the iMacs that plug into the wall don't have to worry about spinning the hard drives up or down 
in terms of power consumption, but they certainly do in terms of IO access speed. And finally, if you wanted to just set your power book to sleep, there was also a control strip module that let you trigger it right from the software. Because I think it was a while before you could just close the lid of your laptop and the computer would recognize that it was a gesture requesting the computer to be put to sleep. Right, because that required some some hardware sensors in there. I think I think even that early like PowerBook 190 that my mom had had a feature like that, but in those early PowerBooks, that latch mechanism was literally a latch mechanism. Like there there was a hook and it clicked into place. And that was you had to get that kind of exactly right to get it to trigger to go to sleep. Unlike the magnets that we have in modern MacBooks, where actually, if you have something magnetic on your desk and you accidentally weave it over one of those magnetic sensors, it's the same thing on an iPad, it'll just shut off. <laughs> but yeah, and also at that time, sleep was also a PowerBook-only feature, where now we kind of take for granted that any computer, not just Macs, any computer on the planet, you want to save some power, you're not going to be using it right now, put it to sleep. And that's a mode that any computer can enter into. It can go into low power mode, it can retain all the contents of its RAM, and it can just go on its way until you wake it up. And then that's a very quick process to come back from sleep to wake. But that was a notebook-specific feature, and the fact that you could preserve the contents of RAM by using a small amount of power, again, you couldn't leave an old power book in sleep for a particularly long amount of time because it was still drawing power to keep the contents of RAM active. And unlike the modern laptops that we have today, where if, oh, I put my MacBook to sleep and I forgot about it for three days, which happens sometimes, <laughs> um, and then you come back to it and you go, oh, I haven't charged this for three days and it's been asleep. I bet it probably used up all of the contents of the battery just staying asleep. And you open it up and yeah, it's dead. You got to plug it in. But it was smart enough that even while asleep, it will dump out the contents of RAM to disk and go into like a deep sleep or hibernate mode. And then it takes longer to come back up because it has to restore the contents of RAM once it has power again. That was just not an option. And so sleep was a novel concept, and putting the machine to sleep was definitely not an OS-wide feature. There was no, you know, I mean, in the classic Mac, you would go to special to shut down your Mac, or in OS X, you go to the Apple menu to sleep, restart, or shut down your Mac. But it would make no sense to put that in that menu on an OS-wide basis because it wasn't a possibility for desktop Macs. So for having this having this live in the control strip made a lot of sense. And today, I think there are still lots of little utilities that people use for putting their Macs to sleep. I think everyone has their kind of favorite way of putting your Mac to sleep, or at least sleeping the display. And I know that I think I was listening to recent Mac Power users, and they were talking about different launcher apps that they use, like LaunchBar and Alfred. And they were saying that one of the uses that they have for it is, oh, there, there's an action in there that I can put my Mac to sleep or I can sleep the display. I was thinking, I have never done that. I use, I use apps like this all the time. I've never done that because if I want to put my Mac to sleep, I hit the keyboard shortcut that brings up the shutdown dialog box and I hit S. It's what it's function eject S. Mm -hmm. And that's it. And I walk away. Or if I just want to sleep the display, it's control shift eject. And that gets a little bit fiddly. Like on my work computer, I have an external keyboard that has the eject key, like the current Mac keyboards. And then there's the internal keyboard on the MacBook Air, which got rid of the eject key because there's nothing to eject, obviously. <laughs> so it's a power key. And so you have to include function because function power equals eject. I don't know why. That's the, that's the logic. But yeah, I get up to leave my desk and I just I just whack some keys on the keyboard and I'm out of there and the machine is asleep. And I think sometimes my coworkers think I'm wizard because 
<laughs> I was like, how did you put your computer to sleep? Well, I just hit the keys that put it to sleep. Um, and that's kind of how I think of that now. So it's like, okay, why would I want a little clicky mechanism that to go over here, click here, click this to put my machine to sleep? But when sleep was a new concept, that was clearly the fastest way to do it. And that was the whole reason for its inclusion in the control strip. One final thing about sleeping, I just I had to look it up to make sure I wasn't making something up. But at least in some models of Apple laptops, when the machine was asleep, you could take the battery out to swap it with a freshly charged one if you had one on hand. And there's a knowledge base article that's for like the latest model PowerBook G4s and earliest model MacBook Pros that has, <laughs> gives you one minute. <laughs> you have one minute before the internal backup battery uh, can no longer keep the contents of RAM active. I'm, I'm just imagining the scene in Indiana Jones where he's about to take the statue yes, yeah, exactly. off of, <laughs> off of the, the platform and he's got the bag of sand. <laughs> just going, come on, come on. Yeah. You could just shut down your machine, but I guess, you know. I guess back then, if, I mean, like, I'm not fully aware if, if this was uh, a feature of Apple hardware that early on, but when startup and shutdown were uh, time-intensive processes, maybe you just wanted to sleep. Yeah, I don't know about the hot swappability of those early PowerBook batteries. I think they figured you could put in two and then you had enough. But there were some other features that were relevant, particularly to laptops then, and I think are relevant particularly to laptops still today. And one of those was there was a control strip module for video mirroring. So if you plugged into an external display, you had the option from these early power books. I mean, this, this is one of those things that seems like a feature in the Windows world or something that you have to think about long and hard. But from these early power books, oh, you plug in an external display? Well, you have an option. It shows the same thing as the internal display or it's a second monitor. And so there was a control strip module for that that could let you d decide whether you wanted to have the mirroring enabled or disabled. And that could be a very useful thing to have just a couple clicks away. Say you wanted to give a presentation, plug it in. Oh, the mirroring setting isn't quite right. Click, click, and you're on your way. Looking at my iBook in preparation for this episode, the control strip modules folder, which uh, the iBook is running OS 9, it had a module for video mirroring and a separate module for TV mirroring. And I don't know what the difference is. Maybe it's like putting it out through VGA versus S-Video, which I know that iBook supported both. I, I, was, I was looking at some resources about the breadth of control strip modules that existed. And one of the things that was interesting was that several resources I saw said, well, you're going to get a whole bunch of control strip modules shipped with your operating system. There's going to be all kinds of things in there. And that's once we got to system 7.5, and that was regardless of whether you had a desktop or a laptop. And the thing was that all those things are just going to come with the operating system. They're going to live in the control strip modules folder in the system folder. And only the ones that are applicable for your hardware are going to show up. So... I mean, I, I imagine that the same thing is true today. I imagine that I'm standing here in front of an iMac and that somewhere in my installation of El Capitan is the battery menu extra. Like, they didn't remove that just because they were installing the system on an iMac because it probably takes, you know, a few hundred K somewhere in the bowels of the system directory. But... Obviously, there's no battery that's never going to come up. It's not going to be enabled by default. It's never going to show up. And so the same thing happened with control strip modules. And that one that you mentioned, the TV, what was it TV mirroring? I'm pretty sure TV mirroring. That was only for those like AV Max. Oh, of course. That had the TV, like the RCA inputs, tuners or inputs that you could plug in uh, a separate device that had RCA outputs. Like, I don't know, a VHS deck, <laughs> laser disc player, TV tuner card, you know, all kinds of all kinds of old analog video equipment that some of those AV Macs were capable of dealing with. There were some other modules that especially once uh, the control strip worked on desktop Macs as well, 
applied more to the system in general. A lot of networking stuff like file sharing and Apple Talk control panels or control strip modules. It's easy easy to make the the confusion there because so many of them just an option. You know, the the, the like last menu option was open the control panel related to this because you need something more advanced. And as Ed mentioned, there was a sound output control strip module. There was also a sound source selector if you had maybe like a built-in mic, but also uh, an external mic or a set of speakers versus the built-in speaker. And we've been talking about all these modules as if you you can, like maybe you could find some third-party ones or the next time you update your system, there are some new ones. Where did all these modules live? In the control strip modules folder within the system folder. Naturally. And just like other components of the system software that had lots of individual discrete pieces of software within them, like extensions or control panels, the control strip modules folder was a, quote, smart or intelligent folder within the system folder. So if you downloaded a third-party control strip module from the internet, you could unstuff it, probably, and then just drag the modules icon onto the system folder, and it would give you a nice little dialog box and, and put it into control strip modules for you. You could also drag the control strip modules icon onto the control strip itself, and it would, I think, create a copy in the control strip modules folder. One thing that I ran into when I uh, when we had a G3 iMac that came with the control strip is I definitely wanted to download a couple uh, third-party modules, and I you know I wanted to not even let the system load some of the first-party modules that obviously had no application to a desktop iMac that was always plugged in. Uh, but the kind of the nomenclature for things that you have but don't necessarily want to delete was to make another folder in the system folder and put disabled in parentheses after it, like control panels disabled, extensions disabled, system extensions disabled. The extensions manager uh, control panel would do this automatically for you. But this was the classic Mac OS, and folder and file names could not be longer than 32 characters. 31. Yeah, 31 characters. And control strip modules, space, parentheses disabled, was too long. It's 32 characters. Yep. <laughs> One too long. Yep. So I, I I made do without the parentheses for all the control strip modules that I never wanted to load at startup. I remember just basically hiding the ones that I didn't want. So you could also option drag the modules to reorder them. And then you could resize the control strip to show just the ones that you wanted. So you put all the ones that you didn't want at the end and then resize it down. And I seem to remember, I don't know exactly what the permutation I did here was, but I think that with one of them that I'll mention in a little bit, which was for CD playback, it would have an icon, but then it would also show like the time remaining on the track that you were playing. And I didn't, I was like, I don't need to see the icon. Like, I know what this is for. And I just wanted to see the time remaining. And I had some kind of like dance that I would do where if you resized the control strip, it would snap to the size of the modules that were there. You would never see a partial module when you resized it. But if you made it shorter than the length of all the modules combined, when you scrolled, you might get a partial module. And I had some kind of dance that I would do where I would put the modules in a particular order, size it to a certain size, and then scroll back so that it would just like it would truncate the part of the module that I didn't want to see the whole thing. This is like extremely finicky. <laughs> <laughs> you mentioned uh, moving modules around within the control strip, and we mentioned this a, a before a little bit too, but it behaved like other system elements where if you held down option and clicked on a module within the control strip, you could start dragging it left or right to change its order within the control strip. Or if you wanted to delete it, just drag it vertically up or down, depending on where your control strip was, out of the control strip, and you could continue dragging it to the trash. 
But uh, the convention of option dragging uh, essentially an icon or a file also means something in the Mac OS. So I think there is like a specific timing with holding down option because if you released the mouse uh, button from your drag and but you were still holding down option and let's say you like landed in an open finder window or on the desktop, option drag means create a copy. So the finder would actually create a copy of the control strip module file wherever you pick, uh, <laughs> released your mouse button. That's the opposite of what you wanted. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So you have to like hold down option, start your drag, lift up option, and release the mouse button. Yeah. I mean, it seems like such a minor thing to not have a disabled folder. But I, I was looking at this, uh, and I have here a copy of Max for Dummies, 6th edition. So well enough into the classic Mac's history that control strip was a feature on all Macs, uh, looking at like Mac OS 8.5 was about the time that this edition was released. And <laughs> here's the advice from David Pogue himself. If there's a tile and by tile, he means module you find yourself never using, feel free to get rid of it. Okay, fine. So far, if you have Mac OS 8.5 or later while pressing the option key, drag the tile to the trash. If you have something earlier, open up your hard drive, open your system folder, open your control strip modules folder, trash the icon that corresponds to the one you never use. Like, just get get rid of it for good. Like, this is part of your system software, just put it in the trash and never see it again. I mean, this is before incremental backups, this is before, like, you are not seeing that if you actually take a piece of the system software and put it in the trash. (laughs) But of course... That was also kind of the classic macOS mindset was you could, like we said in our system folder episodes, you could just dive in there and do whatever the heck you wanted. And for that matter, looking around some sites on the Wayback Machine that dealt with control strip modules, it looked like people who were constantly installing and uninstalling control strip modules, trying to come up with their perfect setup for the control strip on their Mac, you would just... Okay, control strip modules disabled, which is like the way that you would name this folder to follow the pattern. It's too long. Well, fine. You just call it control strip mods disabled or control strip modules dis. You know, like you just go in there and create a new folder and name it something else. And as long as it doesn't have the particular name of the active folder that the system is looking for, it'll just ignore it. So uh, you just mentioned some people cruising online looking for some modules. Should we talk about some of the things we had in our control strips? Oh, yeah, absolutely. This is a little bit of a repeat for longtime listeners of the show. But uh, if you go back to episode seven, where we talked about our early experiences with getting on the Internet, um, the main way I was getting on the Internet back in the late 90s was my family's AOL dial-up account, as I'm sure was the same for a lot of other people. And after I got sick of parental controls, I found that there was a free ISP provided by a subsidiary of Kmart within our local area code that uh, once I created an account for, I could uh, establish a PPP connection through the remote access control strip module. It had all my settings, like the number to call, the username and password credentials to give, and I I could manage the entire connection session from the module in the control strip, uh, connecting, monitoring how long I had been essentially on the call, disconnecting, everything was handled from in there. I never had to go into a dedicated client application once I had it set up. Oh, right. And that, that module would just count up the time that you had been connected. Like that was an important statistic for you. Yeah. If you had like, you know, metered only X amount of hours a month, which this one wasn't. And the only vestige that I can think of that where the operating system counts up time that you've been connected, it might still do it in the network preference pane. But the only place that I've seen it in a similar fashion to this is that on my work computer, I have VPN installed so that I can access work resources when I'm off the work network by logging into the VPN. And it's a built-in menu extra in OS X and when you connect, it counts up and it tells you the amount of time connected over the VPN, same kind of way. And yeah, I also used that PPP uh, control strip module, I almost called it an extension, 
that control strip module, but only after we finally ditched AOL. And I believe we went to AT&T DSL, which was great for the time and awful in retrospect. (laughs) And that used probably the worst method of connecting a high-speed internet connection ever devised, which was PPPoE, that's PPP over Ethernet. And so you'd use that same module. We used that to connect to our internet access for several years. Uh, that was the only way, basically the only way to do it. I, I mean, there must have been some other way in the system, maybe in a control panel only, to go in and initiate that connection manually. But basically, you started up the computer, you popped open the control strip, and you got online. And that connection dropped all the time. And so that that counter of how long have I been online, that was like... I was like point of pride if you could get it up over an hour. <laughs> um, another one I used, and this was again on the iMac, uh, running in like Mac OS 8.6, nine days was a third party control strip module called the control strip menu. And, uh, we've, we talked about, uh, other ways to like browse your Mac system. Uh, one of the favorites is to put an alias of your hard disk or a high level folder in the Apple menu. And once the Apple menu got submenus, you could browse, you know, to your heart's content from there. And this was a similar thing that made uh, an alias to wherever you wanted to start uh, be the pop-up menu coming out of its control strip module. And uh, this was such a flaky thing because it created its own system folder folder called control strip menu items in which you would put the aliases of uh like the folders you wanted to maybe go directly to or the folders where you wanted to start browsing. And because I was a lazy idiot, I put the alias to Macintosh HD in this folder. And I think that this control strip module was, you know, like not designed to do that. And it was just kind of like a a game of chance. Like when I click this to (laughs) open it, is it going to crash the computer and throw up a, a bomb? We'll see. Right. And as we were prepping this, you were telling me about this and how flaky it was. And, you know, let he who has not installed stupid software on his Mac cast the first stone. But (laughs) as you were mentioning this, I thought, wait, were you doing this on a PowerBook, like on a Mac laptop that had access to the control strip? And this was a feature that suddenly you had access to, but you said no, it was on the iMac, right? Yeah. I'm like, okay, so I was thinking, wait, So the control strip came to desktop Macs in 7.5.3, and hierarchical Apple menu submenus came in 7.5. So why? (laughs) Uh, Because once I was on the iMac specifically, uh, there was like this perfect confluence of when I wanted to get on the internet, it was in the control strip. Um. I was switching resolutions and uh, color bit depth to play old games pretty frequently. I was doing that also, also from the control strip. There were two separate modules for each of those things, one for resolution and one for depth. And as I recall, there were some games, like I had an old copy of SimCity, and it required 16 colors. Not minimum 16 colors. It required exactly 16 colors. And on some newer Macs, I think once we got the the Power Mac G3, it was like, I don't go down to 16 colors. Like, that's not an option. If you go into the control panel, that wasn't there. And I think you could convince it through the control strip module and only through the control strip module. That sounds about right. Uh, but so, yeah, so I was there for internet. I was there for monitor resolution and color bit depth. And then at whatever system software, the launcher stopped being a control panel that like didn't open within its own application memory space and became essentially an application that would be in the application switcher. And when you went to about this Mac, say that it was taking up its own memory, that freaked me out for some stupid reason, because it was still like, I think the iMac had 32 megs of memory and the system software was probably using about half of it. And I wanted to run cool games And especially games online where like every kilobyte of available resources mattered. So I think, I mean, I thought that if I could stop relying on the launcher, that would free up, you know, like 50 to 100K of memory, even though like 
before the launcher was a standalone application, it was probably taking up that much memory and it was just allotted under system software. That didn't occur to me back then. But so I was like, oh, if I don't need to have the launcher open as a separate app, I can, what are other ways that I can launch my most used applications? So I went looking for the control strip, uh, a control strip module to do it because I was already doing so many other things from there. But yeah, there's, there's no reason that, that you should be doing this. Well, man, for that purpose, Brian, you really should have had quit CSM. Oh, what is <laughs> Which was a control strip module that showed you the amount of memory being taken up by all of your running applications would let you quit them directly from the menu and even had a quit all option. Yes, I should have had that. I don't know how I missed that. <laughs> well, maybe that was because back when you were actually using the classic Mac OS, you were not aware of the control strip outlet. I was not. No. no, neither was I. We just discovered this as we were we were looking at resources for the show, and there was an entire website called Control Strip Outlet that was devoted to third party control strip modules, which I guess were I, I don't know if they were explicitly encouraged, but just the same as third party developers in the classic Mac could create their own extensions, create their own control panels. There were essentially no restrictions on creating your own control strip modules. So there was a fairly robust trade in these modules that achieved various different purposes, sometimes effectively and sometimes leading to bombs. Yeah, uh, you actually put a, a link in our Slack, like, was the flaky thing you're talking about this one? And it was called Favor Strip. And this is probably what I should have used. This was a control strip module available and distributed at the control strip outlet that uh, puts your favorites folder, which I think started in Mac OS 9 or maybe 8.6. I was going to say that's an 8.5, somewhere in there. Yeah. It was just a, a quick access to whatever was in your favorites folder. Which was another folder in the system folder that was sanctioned as a special folder, but in this case, sanctioned by the operating system, not just sanctioned by some random third party. There's, yeah. There's so many other things I should have done for the amount of pain that I went into what I actually used. But yeah, there were dozens, if not hundreds of these third party modules, and some of them looked like they were particularly useful, and some of them were just ridiculous. I, I mean, there was one that let you play a little slot machine game in the control strip. <laughs> And this makes me think of you know, every time that Apple gives third-party developers access to some new platform, not even a whole operating system platform, but just some space where they say, we're opening this up so third-party developers can create great, useful software. You know, you get your slot machines in the control strip, you get your fart apps on iOS, mm -hmm. And you get your like catch the bouncing ball in dashboard on OS 10. It's like no matter what you do, someone's going to come up with the most useless thing that you could put in that place. And I think that this is one of them. <laughs> and it was called Strip Bandit, which sounds it, it's got that just kind of dirty Vegas name to it. <laughs> So there were several of these third-party modules, and there were some resources where you could go and find them and augment the control strip while it was still a useful, active piece of the system software. But obviously, the control strip only lasted as long as the classic Mac OS did. So many of the updates on control strip outlet that we'll link to is kind of peters out around 2001. And the, the heyday of this was like 1999, 2000. But also, of course, at that time... Mac OS X development was really starting in earnest. We've mentioned several things already in the episode that are comparisons to the features that were offered by the control strip that are still around in the modern Mac OS in OS X. And it's interesting that we didn't just go from one straight to the other. There was kind of a line of development here. And there's a blip in the middle that uh, it seems like the Mac community couldn't figure out exactly what to call them. But in the very first release of Mac OS X, 10.0, there were essentially control strip modules in the dock, which seems like a natural extension. It was something that lived at the bottom of your screen. 
And just like control strip modules were kind of individual discrete icons that, uh, of course, in the control strip could expand horizontally. Similarly, it made sense that this, this interface element at the bottom of your screen could have little discrete places where you could click, get a pop-up menu, and quickly change some settings. And the dock has, from 10.0 or even earlier, like DP3 of OS X, had the ability to spawn little pop-up menus, usually on a right-click or secondary click, as opposed to a primary click, like on the control strip. But that ability has been there, so it was definitely a logical place. So there were a couple things, uh, and true to the original control strip, there were three that shipped with 10.0, and two of them were basically uh, geared towards mobile laptop users. There were one to manage your displays, the resolution and color bit depth maybe, um, the signal strength of your airport Wi-Fi signal, and the battery monitor. Yeah, I'd say all three of those were geared towards mobile use. Display is the least of them because, of course, you can, can set up multiple monitors at a desktop workstation if you wanted to. But what were these things called? Obviously, it wasn't control strip modules. There was no control strip. So depending on where you look, who you talk to, these were dock extras, dock lings, or even docklets. <laughs> yeah, I think docklets had the least traction for what these were called. And it kind of makes sense. The lit suffix had at least a fixed interpretation in the classic macOS. So there were applications and then there were applets, which were things like compiled Apple scripts, where you it, it had an application icon, but if you double-clicked it, you didn't get anything. You had to give it input by like dragging a file onto it, and then a certain action would happen. And that didn't really fit the metaphor of what these doc extras, doclings, doclets were doing because you weren't giving them input and getting a specific action out of them. And having these settings in the doc turned out to not be uh, the, the best place for them in the new operating system, OS X, because in 10.1, they moved to the menu. Uh, so we'll we'll put some links into our show notes. Uh, in uh, John Syracuse has his famous OS X reviews, in his review for Ars Technica of OS 10.0, he called them docklets. And uh, in the review for 10.1, where he's talking about how they've been removed and are no longer supported, I believe he calls them doc extras, citing Apple's official terminology, by the way. And uh, when Confabulator was released, John Gruber wrote a, a post about its release and referred to the Confabulator widgets as, quote, things similar to the tasks that people made docklets for back in the early days of Mac OS X. We'll put all these links in the show notes. And if you if reading about Confabulator makes you nostalgic for our episode about Confabulator and widgets, that's episode 22. Yeah, and I know I at least speak for myself that I really am relying on these sources of people who are reviewing and using that software at the time because I don't think I've ever used Mac OS 10 10.0. Yeah, I haven't. Which, f from all accounts, uh, I lucked out there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, but, you know, we had a desktop beige Power Mac G3, and there was no way we were installing OS 10 on that thing because it was not going to fly. <laughs> <laughs> and so we stuck with the classic Mac until we got new hardware. And by that time, 10.1 was out. And so I never experienced the docklets. But it makes sense that the terminology was messed up. Where this functionality was going to go was a little bit in flux. I mean, if you remember back to those very early builds of OS X, <laughs> you might remember or have seen the screenshots of the Apple logo no longer being the Apple menu, but just appearing smack dab in the middle of the menu bar, just waiting to get crashed into by menu titles and cause all kinds of ugly conflicts. So it was clear that in the very early stages of OS X, there was no real solution for what was going on in the menu bar. But once that all got cleared up, it was possible to say, oh, wait, all those control strip features? We could put those in the menu bar now because we cleared out that stupid Apple logo. We put it back where it belongs. And now that we're talking about 2000 and beyond, 
the displays, even on small laptops, are big enough that we can fit a few crucial things, more than just balloon help and an application switcher, you know, more than just two tiny little icons, up in the right-hand side. And unless things get really out of control, which they've started to do for many people's computers, <laughs> unless things get really out of control, you're never going to meet in the middle and, and run into some sort of conflict. So this is where a lot of the control strip functionality has gone now. So the official terminology for these, <laughs> we looked this up and Apple is pretty clear on this. The things that live in the top right corner of your menu bar, top right corner of your screen, are now called menu extras. And those have been in OS X from 10.1 and on. And at this point, it's impossible to have none of them. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Um, because you're going to be seeing by default Spotlight and Notification Center. Uh, Spotlight debuted in 10.4 and Notification Center in 10.8. And those are some of those ones where it's like they live in the menu bar, but they're not quite menus. But then there are the things that behave directly like menus, even the clock, the battery. And I think it's fascinating that the battery indicator has so many of those same features that existed in that very first what PowerBook 500 series battery monitor, even down to like in recent, was it, was it in Lion or uh, Mountain Lion that the apps using significant energy got put into that menu again as a grayed out menu item, but you, where you could see, Oh, certain apps are using a lot of energy or my computer in general is draining the battery a lot now. And that was that little analog gauge back in system 7.1. Yeah. And it's back. I mean, it's a little bit more specific now that it can target a single process, but it's that same kind of information in that same kind of format. And we've mentioned, you know, like there, maybe there are situations where it can get out of hand. We all uh, probably have something like Dropbox or Google Drive that likes to live in the menu bar. There are lots of other things uh, like caffeine um, to keep your Mac from going to sleep. We've come full circle. Uh, there are lots of things that that like to keep an icon in the menu bar. I'm just looking at the third party stuff I've got here. I've got I've got Plex, Backblaze, Hazel, uh, Text Expander, and Dropbox. I've got in addition to those, I've got Flux. Oh yeah, I skipped right over Flux. I always I always click on Flux when I mean uh, Time Machine and Time Machine when I mean Flux. That's true. Yeah, those circles with a uh, with lines in the middle. Yeah. So uh, there's now um, a couple apps, but I think there's one clear third party front runner that can tidy up your uh, menu bar, and it essentially kind of returns it to the control strip instead of the the quote band aid. Um, the app that I'm talking about is Bartender, and it replaces almost everything in your the top right of your menu bar with an ellipsis, the three dots. And once you get that, you get a, almost a secondary menu bar, uh, only as big as required to show all the rest of your menu bar extras. Yeah, and the parallels are kind of uncanny that... Uh, Bartender got a big update recently, went to Bartender 2.0. And one of the features that they added that I really love is you can have a keyboard shortcut to show and hide Bartender. And looking back at screenshots of Control Strip and the Control Strip control panel, <laughs> say that three times fast, there was a control panel that changed some of the settings for Control Strip. And in the original release uh, 7.1 and then I think still in 7.5.3 for all Macs, you would go in there and there was one setting, which was basically, do you want to have a control strip on or off? Barely required a control panel. But then in the later versions, as control strip became more refined, became more of an OS feature for everybody in OS 8, 8.5, 9, there were some options in there. And one of them was a key command to expand and contract the tab of the control strip. And I, just thinking about it, that's exactly like Bartender. Yeah. Where now I can, I can mash some keys. Um, I, have, I have weird sets of keys. Uh, mine is, uh, I think, uh, shameless plug here, I'm probably going to talk about this on Pico Mac sometime soon. <laughs> uh, 
um, where I have these sort of like global command keys where if, if anything is like a global search, I require myself to hit command option control. Okay. So for me, command option control B brings up bartender. And and it really is. It's it's like a control strip with like I assume for you a uh, display maybe displays Wi-Fi. I know you're on an IMAX and so not battery, but like a lot of the same things that would have been in the control strip. Yeah, it got really weird for me when I had to get used to not seeing battery in there. <laughs> yeah. Uh but yeah, like Wi-Fi, what even on even on my laptop where I'm traveling around, like what do I need to see Wi-Fi for anyway? If if the Wi-Fi monitor had was a little bit more accurate in terms of displaying signal strength, I might leave it there. But as anyone who has used that knows, there are it, you know, there are four little bands on the Wi-Fi indicator. Four means you're connected, three means you're about to lose connection, and anything less than that doesn't exist. <laughs> yep. <laughs> so yeah, we've we've come all the way from a control strip that by default lived at the lower left corner of your screen, usually on a laptop. And uh, now we've got menu extras at the upper right of the screen that uh, apps, including Bartender, can basically show and hide just like the control strip. It's a, it's a piece of interface uh, that's, that more or less has survived from the classic Mac to now. And I love when we do episodes like these, like our, our At Ease episode, which kind of turned into Launchpad and Springboard. It's it's like it's it's fun to go back and look at how these things that we're used to today, uh, how they were, how they looked, and how they felt, and how they were made manifest in uh, versions of the macOS twenty plus years ago. Yeah, and it's reassuring that as Apple introduces new things that seem bizarre and strange and weird to us, when they come up with something that seems like a genuinely new piece of interface, to think, well, you know, they have a pretty good track record of coming up with new interface ideas that survive for decades. And the fact that this is another example of one of those things that's really carried on and people find, you know, maybe it's not perfect. Maybe it would be great if something like Bartender existed as part of the OS as opposed to a third-party piece of software. But for most people who don't install 20 third-party apps that all put things in their menu extras up in their menu bar, they get by just fine. And the system software works as it's intended to work. And uh, and they see everything that they need to and have quick access to the functionality of their Mac. I think that does it for this episode about the control strip. If you would like to point us to any of your favorite control strip modules, maybe even at the control strip outlet, or uh, give any other kind of feedback, you can contact us through a form on our website, simplebeep.com. And while you're there, you can also see all our past episodes at simplebeep.com slash episodes. Oh, one piece of real-time feedback from me, <laughs> <laughs> which is the, for that, for airport, as I was looking at it and thinking about it, one of the interesting things was that when airport was first released by Apple, they put out a control strip module for classic Mac. Yeah that would show you your signal strength. And I bet it did a better job than the current one does. I can, I can report back in our next episode because the iBook I have has an airport card uh, and it has the control strip module. I will need to tell my router to pump out like 802.11a if it even can't be. A is the new one. Oh, that, that, yeah. So it can see it. But yes, uh, I can report back on that. All right. Look forward to that follow-up. Of course, if you want to get in touch with us on Twitter, you can find the show at simple underscore beep. We post things there fairly frequently, including uh, info like we said about going to release notes and any other fun links that we find when we're not on the mic doing the show. And of course, you can find us individually on Twitter as well. I'm at eCormany, E-C-O-R-M-A-N-Y. And I'm at Bsuto, B-S-U-T-O. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.